The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents Setting the Record Straight, where various Christian Reconstructionist pastors seek to understand and dissect the issues that are plaguing the church today, from the pulpit to the pew. So we're looking at the book of Exodus today. We're going to be doing kind of an overview, except that it won't be a straight overview in the sense of in the sense of telling you what is in the book of Exodus or major things that happened. Uh, what I want to do is what I did with Genesis a couple of weeks ago. It, I want to make what I'm calling a covenantal survey of the book of Exodus. I want to look at major things that happen in the book and how they fit into the Bible's covenant structure. Why is that important? Well, because everything in the Bible is about covenant. All of our dealings with God are through our covenant that we have with God. And the Bible covers everything. The Bible is about everything. The Bible is about everything. The Bible is about the covenant. Guess what? The covenant is about everything. And... So the more we understand about the biblical covenant, the more we're going to be able to operate in this world as covenant keepers. And so it's important for us to just be people who practice these things, who discern them in the scripture, and are then able to apply them in the world. Our friends in India are the ones who requested a survey of the Pentateuch. And so here we are in book two. And so, shout out to all the kids in India. Glad to have you all listening. Uh, say hello, they might hear you. <laughs> all right. Uh, we're glad to have you all listening. So, a covenantal survey of the book of Exodus. How many points are there in the biblical covenant? Five points. An easy way to remember them, we've mentioned it before, I'll go over it again. An easy way to remember them is the Greek word for God, which is theos, T-H-E-O-S. Each one of those letters stands for a point of the covenant. The first point then is the T, and we call it transcendence. The first point of the covenant is meant to answer the question, who's in charge here? Okay? Well, who is in charge? It's God who is in charge. We see that plainly throughout the book of Exodus. In fact, I think the in-chargeness of God is one of the major covenantal themes that we're going to run, run into. Frankly, we see that uh, really in, in, the cha- in the chapter that we read right before we began, chapter 3, when God appears to Moses in the burning bush. What is he saying? I am the God of all of your fathers. I have come to bring my people out of Egypt. It's not Moses who decided he was going to deliver the people. It's God who called Moses. And so we see right away in the book of Exodus, the in-chargeness of God. Who's in charge? The God who showed up in the burning bush. He's the one who's in charge. He's come to, to rescue his people. Then in verses 5, or in chapters 5 through really 13, we have the 10 plagues. And what do we see there? We see God demonstrating his victory and his 
sovereignty or his in chargeness over all the gods of Egypt, including Pharaoh himself. And, and really, the ten plagues, they're a dynamic and dramatic unfolding of God's proof that he is the transcendent one. There's no God like he is God. Amen? And you do well to fear this God because he is so transcendent. He is so high up. He is so holy. He is so in charge of everything that's going on. Then in the next chapter, we get from chapter 13 and the Passover. We go to chapter 14 and the crossing of the Red Sea. Here we have again a big, huge demonstration of the transcendent sovereignty of God opening up a way, right? You have the river flowing or the sea flowing and, and a way is opened up and the water stands like walls on both sides and the ground is instantly dried and God sends his people through. Now you went to Exodus chapter 20. Look with me. Exodus 20 and the beginning of the Ten Commandments. Look at verses 1 and 2. It says, Then God spoke all these words. What words? The words of the Ten Commandments, the words of the law. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. What I'm telling you here is that God himself is answering the question, Who's in charge? Well, I am. Why are you in charge? Because I'm the one who brought you out. And the transcendence of the biblical covenant is all talking about who rescued you, who redeemed you, who created you, who revealed himself to you. It's the transcendent God. And right here at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, the conquering king is telling you why he has the authority to give you these commandments in the first place and why you ought to keep them. And why is that? He has won the battle on your behalf. He's the one who brought you out. He's the one who sent you through the Red Sea and covered the Egyptian army in the waters after you had passed through on dry land. That's why he gets to be in charge. Amen? And so that answers the question. The big T, transcendence. Who's in charge of this outfit? Well, God is. Now we get to the second point of the covenant, the H stands for hierarchy. We can also use words like mediation, mediators, representation. In this covenant, who represents God? Several of you were in the military, and you know as soon as you swore, as they swore you in in the military, you were frankly under the direction of the commander-in-chief, right? That's who was in charge. But you didn't get to go to the commander-in-chief and talk things over with him. He had a whole series of representatives and delegated authorities. And it's important for you, whatever command they sent you to, at some point you need to know, I understand who's ultimately in charge of this outfit, but to whom do I report? And that becomes the question of the second part of the covenant. I know who's in charge, but specifically me, this grunt on the ground or this squid squabbing or swabbing the deck... <laughs> cleaning the bilge, who do I report to? And that's when we get into the section of mediation. Who is the representative of this transcendent power? This is another huge theme in the book of Exodus. Who's the mediator? Who's the one representing God? Well, it's obviously Moses, right? 
It's not just Moses, though. Moses complains, and he gets, he got, he gets uh, reprimanded for his complaining. He complains again. He gets reprimanded. He complains some more, and God says, Oh, well, okay, take Aaron with you. Aaron can speak well. And so Aaron becomes a mediator. What's he mediating at first? At first, Moses is sent to mediate the God of Israel to Pharaoh and to the people of Israel. But God's the first dramatic mediation is Moses and Aaron are standing in the place of God and they are uh, presenting his demands to the king, to Pharaoh. Later on, we see in the book of Exodus, this is going to expand. We're going to see that the whole line of Aaron becomes, in a sense, mediators. They become priests. What's the difference between a prophet and a priest? Well, in terms of their mediation, the priest generally represents the people to God. And the prophet generally represents God to the people. Now, that can go both ways. Prophets pray for the people and the priests teach the law of God to the people. But generally, that's kind of the way that works. And so the priesthood is developed at the end of the book of Exodus. In the final chapters, we see Aaron and his sons are set up to be the priests. But more than that, you know what we find out at the, at the end of the book of Exodus? For the last ch- five chapters or so, we have the furniture of the tabernacle and the tabernacle itself. And you know what all that stuff is? That's all mediation. That's all God using these object lessons as you learn more about this furniture that's inside the tabernacle. You're learning about spiritual realities and God is bringing you in past the altar, past the bread, past the laver of water, past the incense altar up to the Ark of the Covenant. And all these things are meant to teach you and draw you into the presence of God. And so all of that is about mediation, right? So section two of the covenant answers the question, to whom do I report? And Moses was set up as the leader along with Aaron. Then section three of the covenant, it's the E of Theos. What's that stand for? Ethics. Section three of the covenant is ethics. And it answers the question, Now that I'm in this outfit, what are my responsibilities? What's my job? What am I supposed to do? And that's what section three mediates to us, is this question, or the answer to this question. What are your your responsibilities? What are you supposed to do? Well, in chapter 20 of the book of Exodus, we get the Ten Commandments. And then in the following chapters, we get... Uh, what we call the case laws, which are applications of those Ten Commandments. What do you do if a man does this? What do you do if you find a man doing this? And we get all these case laws showing us how to deal with individual cases. What is this? It's God saying to you and me, here's your responsibilities. Here's what you're supposed to do. Obviously, a huge covenantal theme of the book of Exodus is the law of God. Let's stop for a minute and go back and look at this. In the new covenant that we have in Christ, now that we've seen this far, in the new covenant that we have through Christ, who's in charge? Same God, 
right? Same God, same transcendent God is in charge. To whom do you and I report? Jesus. Jesus is the representative, right? What did he say to Philip? Philip, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I am here representing God to you. Do you want to know what God is like? Look to Jesus. Amen? And so Jesus becomes our mediator. But where a lot of the churches has kind of gone off the rails is that we want to install a whole bunch of other mediators, right? And so we want to come up with our own priesthood. We want to come up with our council of elders that can be in charge of stuff. And to whom you have to report, we want to have deacons do the same thing and be in charge of church discipline and all this, frankly, nonsense that is not found anywhere in the Bible. You know, most Christians, if you ask them who does church discipline, they're going to try to tell you that the elders are the ones who are basically in charge of church discipline. And the truth is, you will not find a single verse in the whole New Testament that connects the elders with church discipline. What you're going to find is individual believers being responsible for each other and encouraging one another. And if you offend me, you sin against me, now I go to you. Or if I do the other way around and I sin against you, which that's never going to happen, it's, it's going to be your responsibility to come to me and we can talk these things out. And We're supposed to be mature enough adults and believers that we can deal with things ourselves and we don't need somebody over us who's given mediatorial power to tell us when we're in the kingdom of God and when we're not and when we can enjoy its blessings and when we can't. Many churches have a whole system of mediators set up, right? The Catholic Church particularly has this gigantic ladder of different levels of mediators. And to get to God, you've got to go through them. Even in your prayer life, you've got to go through mediators, but the, the big news, part of the good news of the gospel is that in Christ Jesus, you have your access to God. Amen. He is the one. And how about this? Remember you had the tabernacle with all the furniture? And it used to be if you were going to pray to God wherever you were, the best thing to do would be to turn and face the tabernacle and get down on your hands and knees and put your face in the dust and pray toward the tabernacle. Later, when the tabernacle was changed into the temple, it was the same thing. You could be in a foreign land, but when it came time to pray, you'd pray toward the temple. Why? Because that's the place of the mediation. But now what has God done? The mediation lives in you. The presence of God used to live in that holy of holies that you had to turn and face but part of the good news is that now the mediator is not in some place that you have to travel to and go to or look toward or aim at. The mediator has come to dwell within you. Wow, that's amazing good news. God is not far off. He is right with you. What a blessing of the new covenant. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now 
to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom. But now we get to the point of ethics, and we see here, this is a place where the whole church is basically in turmoil and messed up about. We see the Ten Commandments. Well, now that you're in Christ, you don't have to keep the law or obey any of those commandments. We've got news. No. Guess what? God's ethical demands, what he calls morality, what he calls righteousness, what he calls sin, it's the same. That has not changed. What am I telling you? You have to keep the commandments to be saved? No, that's not what I'm telling you. I'm telling you since God has brought you through the Red Sea, since he has brought you through the cross and the empty tomb, and since the mediator lives in you, now how about you and me start living the way he always wanted his people to live? That's not hard. Why has the church made it so hard? Well, because sometimes it is hard. Sometimes, sometimes sinning is a lot easier. Frankly, a lot of the time sinning is a lot easier. But we can't excuse our sin. Uh, people misquote the verse out of Romans that says uh, we're not under law but under grace. And some people would use that to say now that we're in grace, we don't have to worry about the law. But what's, the, what's it say right after that? Shall we sin then since we're not under law but under grace? May it never be. So God's definitions of sin have not changed. This is why it's important for us to study the law. You know what has happened in our world is now Christians who do not understand these things, we look to everybody else to tell us what's right and wrong. Especially in America, we look for the government to tell us what's right and wrong. And it's amazing how many Christians out there are confused about what's legal and what's moral. And it's amazing how many Christians see them together and join. Whatever the government says is legal, we can't really say anything about it. Or when you and I are involved in, a, in an activity that the Bible says is moral, it's not immoral, it's not sinful, but if the government outlaws it, suddenly we call that illegal. You and I need to stop worrying so much about what men say is legal and illegal, and we need to start worrying about what God says is criminal or sinful or righteous. Because the way it is now, we're being told by the government what's legal and illegal, and the way it's designed is we should be telling them. They should need to listen to us. And it's all upside down now. And that's why the church is as irrelevant as it is. Because Christians have voluntarily given that assignment to the government. You tell us what's right. And we are totally messed up because of that. Does the Obergefell decision now mean that perversion is okay? No way. 
Does Roe versus Wade mean that abortion is moral? Absolutely not. We need to be saying to the government, thus saith the Lord. And as, I am a, as, as much as I am accountable to him, so are y'all. You will meet up with him on judgment day. And so the government has its definitions of legal this and illegal this and all that we needed to take it to the scripture. What does the scripture say? And that needs to be our only judge. Get me on my soapbox, y'all. Let's go to the fourth part of the biblical covenant. It's the O in theos. I've said it three different ways now. I said theos and theos and now theos. <laughs> that just shows my unity and diversity here. <laughs> the O stands for oaths or sanctions. Remember, this is the part of the covenant where you sign on the dotted line and you call down a self-maledictory curse on yourself and you say, may all this happen to me and more if I do not do what I'm agreeing to here. This is that section, signing on the dotted line. What this looks like in the biblical covenant is the promise of curses and blessings. If you obey, this is what you will get from God. If you continue to rebel and be covenant breakers, this is what you can expect. And you should not expect anything different than those. Where do we see this? I think it's a huge theme in the book of Exodus. Remember the plagues that were poured out on Egypt Listen, this wasn't just God randomly deciding I need to show how powerful I am and I'm going to pick this unlucky group of people to destroy as a way of showing how powerful I am. That's not what happened. The plagues where God really represent God paying back the injustice that had gone on for 200 years in Egypt. What do you mean, Pastor? What's the biblical penalty for man-stealing, for kidnapping? It's death. What's the biblical penalty for blasphemy against God? Death. What's the biblical penalty for murder? Death. And what had Egypt done to Israel for 200 years prior to this? All those things, blaspheming their God, forcing them to worship other gods, murdering their children... There are a lot of people that come to that 10th plague and the, and the death of the firstborn in Egypt. And, and there are a lot of Christians that get uneasy about that. Well, how can that be? My God doesn't kill firstborn children. Listen, Egypt killed all the male babies of Israel. At least in that one period of time. God doesn't decide to destroy people for nothing. God is a just judge who pours out just sanctions on those who are in rebellion against him. And that's how you should see the plagues. It's not just God randomly deciding, I'm, I gotta, gotta display my power somehow. Y'all just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. That's not it. He's paying them back for a couple of centuries worth of kidnapping, slavery, murder, and blasphemy. They're getting exactly what they deserve and no more. Now that's bad. If you get from God exactly what that you deserve and no more, you're <laughs> we call that hell in Christian theology. 
But we see it other places. We see this theme of sanctions. The whole setting up of the uh, sacrificial system that Moses begins to do is what? It's all about shedding blood. It's about uh, God allowing you to take a sinless, innocent substitute and put him in your place. What is that? Sanctions. God is allowing an innocent substitute to take your place, to take the punishment that you deserve. That doesn't remind us of anything, does it? Any New Testament idea? We've mentioned it before. It's good to mention it again. John Gill says that when they strapped the, I believe it was John Gill, and did research into the way they they skewered the Passover lamb and held it over the fire once it was dead. They slayed the lamb and they tied it to a skewer and held it over the fire to roast it. He says the way they did that, they tied the two back feet together, ran the, and then tied the, the, the vertical. There was a vertical pole that went and they tied the feet on one end and the front end of the lamb on the other end. And then they actually took the two front legs and spread them out and tied each one to a cross pole so that the lamb is, if you imagine the lamb suspended or the goat suspended over the fire, it's actually got its back feet tied together and its front legs are spread out like this as it's suspended over the fire, being roasted so that the people of Israel could go free. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? How do you not see Christ in that? Right? God in his mercy allows a sinless substitute to take your place. Do you know this morning that a sinless substitute has taken your place and that the wrath of God has been fully poured out on him? What this means is that you poor sinners sitting here today, guess what? God has no more wrath for you. If you are found in Jesus today, God has no more anger, no more hatred, no more impatience, no more more jealousy. God is satisfied with the outpouring of his wrath on his own son. Believe this good news and be saved. This is the covenant by which you are saved. Jesus, your substitute. There's an interesting thing that happens in, Mo- in uh, Moses' life in chapter 4 of Exodus. You almost never hear anybody talk about it. Janie's already smiling. You know what I'm about to mention. God calls Moses, and he's in the process of sending him to Egypt. And at one point, they're at a rest stop on the way to Egypt. And it, and it says that God came and sought to kill Moses because he had not circumcised his son. Wow, what? God already set this plan in motion. He's already called Moses and he's going to kill him because he had not yet circumcised his son. Now, that seems to have been the fault of Moses' wife. She, she seems to have been the one that was keeping that from being done. And Moses was unable to convince her. She decides I better get this done and comply or my husband's going to be dead and She's not happy about it, obviously, but she does the deed. She circumcises her son, and, and Moses is allowed to live. What does that mean? What that means is that God is not playing around when it comes to the sanctions of his covenant. The circumcision is part of that signing the dotted line. When a, when a 
when a person was circumcised in these ancient days, it was his way of saying, I am saying by this ceremony that I am devoted to God and my children will be devoted to God. Well, Moses had failed to do that. How much of it was his fault? Uh, You know what? It was enough God was going to kill him. So that's sanctions. Now you and I, what do we do? We don't do the circumcision thing. It's, it's totally a non-issue for us, but that's where baptism comes in, right? That's you and I saying, from this point forward, I belong to God and no longer to myself. And the book ends dealing with the final section of the covenant. It's the S in Theos. And it's the, oh, what does the, let me give you this question. We were talking about questions. The first question was, who's in charge? Second question was, to whom do I report? Third question is, what are my responsibilities? The fourth question, which is answered by sanctions, is, what do I, what do I get for obedience or, di- or disobedience? And so, blessings and cursings come in there. The fifth question is, does this outfit have a future? How's this thing going to carry on? And the book of Exodus ends with, Israel having everything they need from a human standpoint. They've got everything they need to carry this covenant on into the future. They've got the tabernacle. They've got the priesthood. They've got some of the rules for how to worship God correctly through sacrifice and all of that. They've got his law. It's their constitution as a nation. They've got all that. They've even got leadership established. They have everything they need. They can take this that they have received and move into the future with that. So the question is answered right at the end of the book. You've got everything. And what do you and I have? We don't have that furniture like we talked about, but we do have the promise of Christ. We do have the promise of Christ who has given us a mission that has not yet been fulfilled. What's that mission? To go, teach all nations to do whatsoever things he has commanded and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Go and do these things, and your provision for the future, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So the fact that you and I don't live in the age of the apostles, which might have been cool, I don't know, to see the apostles going around doing all all these miracles, that might have been neat. But I'm convinced the message of the Scripture is it's better for you and I now. There was, there was a rough time they had in that first century. There were a lot of them just being killed. Amen. You and I live much better than they lived. But the mission remains the same and the provision of God. He sent His Holy Spirit. He's given you His Word. The Father and the Son come and take up residence within you in addition to the Holy Spirit. The gifts of the Spirit, the, all the teaching you could ever hope for. Wow, what keeps us from taking over the world. Well, stay tuned. I believe it's going to happen. Not with bombs and guns, but with the good news of the gospel. I believe the knowledge of the Lord will, in fact, cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And you and I get to be part of that. That's an amazing thing. Thank you for listening to Setting the Record Straight. Join us on Facebook at the Reconstructionist Radio Discussion Group. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to listen to all of our podcasts and to download our free audiobooks.